Kylie. So have you, you know where the lion's den's at, right? Yeah. On the highway. It's like, what, 20, 30 minutes away from here? Uh-huh. <laughs> For those who don't know, a lion's den is an adult store. It's like 18 plus. You have to have an ID to go to the store, okay? Wouldn't, that won't even like accept like a phone picture of it. Right. Like you have to have your ID. Anyways, have you noticed, I drive past this lion's den every day on my way to work. Have you noticed, not just like next to the lion's den, but like a little bit down the road because there's a lion's den, there's a billboard about how you're going to go to hell if you watch porn. No. Farmland. You, the <laughs> next time you go like I literally I'm like Kylie would love this because I'm sure she's never seen it or paying attention literally like like right after you pass the lines then like because it's an exit right there uh-huh to get straight it's like you turn to the left you're going to a truck stock you, you're turning to the right you're going to lines then perfect for truckers right it makes sense it's not a strip club it's a lines then which a strip club would make more sense for the truckers but whatever um literally there's farmland right there, too, and there's a billboard, a huge billboard that talks about if, like, how porn is a sin and you're gonna go to hell for porn. Right next to Lion Den. Lion's Den. Well, I guess I'm going to hell. Me, too. But, <laughs> but like, not for watching, but for making. But <laughs> but still, I was, like, it was, I don't know, I just figured you'd like it because it was so funny because, like, come on. How? That's it's very Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when there's, like, anti-abortion billboards everywhere. I can't stand those. There's, or, like, you should smile. You have you seen, life. Have, I see that every day. Have, anyways, guys, this is Bullshit with Emmy. Kylie. And we have some fun things we're going to talk about today. So, enjoy. We had permission to use any of his music. That is called Fuck You, You Ain't Shit by Zach James. And you can hear his songs anywhere you get music. Uh, we're mutuals on TikTok. And I honestly, I followed him because I like his music. And then I reached out and asked if we could post it on the podcast. And um, yeah, we're going to push his music because I feel like most of the, honest, the audience would like it. What do you think, Kylie? I think so, because fuck you, you ain't shit. Anybody who's ever done us wrong. Fuck you, you, you ain't shit. Fuck you, you ain't shit. <laughs> um, but we have an interesting guest today, Colton. Um, and a good portion of the show, Kylie. Kylie missed, but that's okay. She hops in towards the end. Um, Colton was a great guest, and we loved having him on. But go ahead and introduce yourself. Um, so my name is Colton. Um, I'm 19. I don't exactly have any sort of uh, credentials to be talking about this kind of stuff. Um, I'm just somebody who's been diagnosed with BPD. Um, I was raised by narcissistic parents. Um, I've been diagnosed with CPTSD as well. Um, so this is just kind of me talking about my experience, um, sharing information that I've collected from various sources, including this wonderful book. <laughs> we love books, but mostly Kylie. I am I am far from a reader. Most of the time, if she wants me to know something that she's read about, she has to read it to me because I'm like, don't even send me the link. I, right. I'm a, a little bit dyslexic. So I. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about 
when you started to realize something was different for you? So when I was growing up, I was always like the black sheep of the family. Um, none of my family really took me seriously when it came to mental health. Um, I mean, I, I want to get a little, talk a little bit about it later on, but there's a lot of generational, yeah. my family yeah. coming from a Hispanic background too. So there's a lot of cultural things there as well. Um, but uh, my whole life, I kind of knew that it was off. Um, I knew that something was like different in some kind of way. Um, it wasn't until um, I started seeing, it wasn't until actually my first suicide attempt where I was like, okay, this is not great. <laughs> um, so I started seeing a therapist um, and we weren't exactly, it wasn't very like a, let's figure out what's going on. It's kind of just talk to me and I'll listen. And it wasn't really, it was great because I didn't have that kind of outlet, but it's also not what I needed um, and then it wasn't until much later on in life, um, uh, January, actually, where I was like, okay, you know what, I think I really want to start thinking about my mental health uh, last January. And, um, you know, I want to go to a psychiatrist, I want to be seen by somebody, and I want to get answers. Um, mm -hmm. And they didn't diagnose me with anything. Um, however, I had a partner a couple months before that, who was di also diagnosed with BPD at the time. Um, and she was like, you know, this is sounding painfully familiar. Uh, so we, she basically explained to me, you know, I was getting answers from her at the time. Um, so I kind of had, a had a, had an understanding of the things that were wrong with me, but I never had something to pin it on. Um, okay. so that would affect, you know, my relationships with my family. I couldn't explain certain things. Um, so it was, it was very overwhelming. Um, and then I went to a psychiatric hospital in August, um, and they did, um, some tests. I talked with psychiatrists and things like that. And that's when I was diagnosed with BPD. Um, the weird thing is that before, uh, back in January of 2023, um, I didn't have any diagnosis yet. They gave me, uh, medication. So I had, um, I was on antidepressants for a bit. Um, and then a couple months went by and I was like, yeah, this is great. Like, but I'm still like, my mood swings are off. Like I'm, I'm charting it and it's not working for me. So they gave me mood stabilizers. Um, they made me really sick. Don't note for, to everybody looking into mental health. Don't go into medication before you see someone, please. No matter how yeah. hard your doctor pushes it it's not it's not good because you don't know what it's going to do to you you don't know what you're even treating um right so it it messed everything up so I ended up getting you know I ended up having physical illness from uh my mood stabilizers and it was just horrible and it was like that for uh a couple months and then it wasn't until early August where I decided to stop them cold turkey and it was not a great idea one of the no, worst weeks of one of the worst weeks of my life. And never is, especially the ones that can give you withdrawal-like symptoms. I've personally been on a number of different mood stabilizers and antidepressants because when I was 18, I was officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And for years, often on medication, nothing ever worked. Well, plot twist, but like a year ago, they went and re-diagnosed me. It's not bipolar disorder, it's ADHD. So that's why none of the medications for bi that they typically use to treat bipolar disorder were working. It just, it just caused severe weight gain. It was all that it did for me. 
yeah yeah that's but, that's why looking into it professionally is so important oh yeah yeah and how old were you when you started therapy again when you first started um i started therapy so i started therapy as young as i think i was six um and okay. it was for it was family therapy my parents were going through a divorce and it was just to kind of you know help everybody help things run mm -hmm. smoothly um yeah which it did help um I mean I don't have any recollection of it but I'm sure it helped in some way because I'm, I'm <laughs> you know no it, I get I get that because <laughs> my parents got divorced when I was really young I was even younger than you I was like three years old and the courts asked my dad to put us in some type of therapy dynamic because my mom would like skipped out she's like nah you're good and my dad ended up with full custody so to change that adjustment they put us in family therapy but I don't remember anything I just remember yeah. some bald guy <laughs> that's it so all I, I remember all I remember is um there was a tv with videotapes and you know in the waiting room and like some play toys and I would put Tarzan on every single time that was my jam that's you know that's what I watched while I was waiting to be seen um but yeah so uh I started therapy as little as six and then um that kind of died off after about I don't know two years maybe less I, I don't remember much of it um and then I think I started therapy around 12 13 that was um and then that was when I uh had my first attempt um and it was like, a, it was through a youth program that like my school was affiliated with and, you know, it was free therapy. So my mom's like, yeah, sure. Um, like I said, it was great because, you know, we, I had an outlet, but then at the same time, um, it wasn't like a, um, I couldn't, you know, rely on her for helping me with anything other than just listening, kind of. Um, and being a minor, especially in a family that doesn't, support mental health it's kind of like you're between a rock and a hard place because on right. one end you could seek this out on your own but then you also need your parents permission and if they don't believe it they're not going to sign for it so it's just it's 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 a cycle of mind-blowingness um luckily uh one of my parents um is doing amazingly with recovery and working on healing herself and it's great um other parent i don't talk to <laughs> um uh, but then once I was in, um, I started doing that therapy and I did that until I think high school, uh, maybe the end of, um, middle school, beginning of high school. Um, and then that's when I figured out I was trans. Um, once I figured out I was trans, it, things kind of changed and there was like, um, it seemed like there was now something, um, in my life that, I was going through by myself and it felt like that with every part of my life, but especially with being trans, I, none of my family members, as far as I knew were gay, apparently my, one of my uncles were gay. Um, but I didn't know anybody who was LGBT and it made me very, you know, kind of, Oh, well, shit. <laughs> um, so that kind of changed things. And then I don't remember going to therapy again until um, I started family therapy. We did another version of family therapy in, uh, like we started it in like 2020. Um, it was like over zoom. It was COVID type thing. Um, and it was the same family therapy center that we did when I was a child, but this time it was 
for one of my parents to accept my identity um, because they they just couldn't accept it. Like it was just not for them. Um, whatever, you know, whatever issues they have, that's, they just weren't able to um, use my correct name and pronouns, things like that. Um, and then that kind of failed. <laughs> um, and after that, I didn't have anything else until when I got out of the psychiatric unit in um, uh, Oct uh, not October, um, August. And how was your experience in the psychiatric unit? Did they also not give you caffeine? They're so awful, I swear to God. <laughs> I am going to call them out so fucking hard. It's Park Royal Hospital in uh, Fort Myers, Florida. If you look them up, okay. they have like, I don't know what their reviews are right now, but they are awful. So the unit that I was in, first of all, <laughs> I went to an emergency room and I was talking to a really, really close friend of mine before this and I was planning it out. I'm like, okay, I'm having withdrawal. This is not okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. I can't work. Like I'm having five panic attacks a day in the bathroom on my work shift mm -hmm. and work shift is five fucking hours. So I was like, this is not happening. So my friend reached out to one of his medical professionals, uh, one of his medical professional friends. And he was like, yeah, you know, if you go in and you say you're Baker acted, if you, you want to be Baker acted, you're voluntarily telling them you want to be committed. So that means that you can leave after 72 hours if you don't want to be there anymore. I'm like, great, perfect. This is exactly what I need. Cause if I need out, I have out. No, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. So when I got to the emergency room, I told them I was, you know, I was having hallucinations. I was having suicidal ideation. Um, I, you know, was having really bad um, gastrointestinal issues because I was constantly, you know, I couldn't keep food down um, because of the medication and just because everything's unbalanced now. Um, I was like, this is the worst fucking psychosis I've had in my life. Fucking help me. Um, and they were like, okay, well, here's what we'll do. We'll put like, they're, they're like, we're going to give you a few options. Like, like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to detox. That's what I want to go in there for. I want to detox. And then if I'm not, if I'm still feeling shitty, I'll admit myself. Um, and they're like, all right, great. So I get there and they put, they, they didn't even put me on a detox. They just gave me some fluids, which I was told a detox is something different. Um, I, I have no idea. But anyways, when they came back, they kept coming back and checking on me. And there was like three different doctors that were asking me my symptoms. And then the fourth doctor came in and she's like, okay, are you still experiencing these symptoms? I'm like, yeah, like you haven't done anything yet. And she's like, oh, well, then we're going to Baker Act you because you're having suicidal ideation. I was like, okay, interesting. So they put me in a smaller unit that was just down the hall and it was just off of the side of the emergency. And it's where they put the emergency psychiatric patients until an ambulance can come get them. So I was sitting in that room. TV was loud as fuck, bright as fuck. I couldn't turn it off. <laughs> um, they made me take out all my piercings. So I had these, I had my septum and my gauges. I had to take everything out. Um, I had to hand everything over to them. The only thing that I was allowed was a little piece of paper with contacts on it. And at the time I had my service dog and I was told that psychiatric units allow service animals. 
if they're tasked trying to assist a disability, which my dog was. So I had my service dog with me. And at this point, it's like 11 at night or maybe maybe later. I think it's like 12, one in the morning. And um, they were like, oh, you're going to have to like someone's going to have to take the dog home. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, huh? So me being separated from my dog, who I raised and trained, and he, you know, is there to assist me with these issues that I've been experiencing and uh, assist me with my symptoms, um, you're completely separating me from him. So I'm like, like, I'm freaking out. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to keep my cool, but I'm also very, very tired. And I'm, I'm kind of like in, not in and out of sleep, but I'm very much not fully there. Um, and then, you know, the night passes, whatever, and I get waking up. I'm like, what time is it? They're like, it's 7 a.m. Vitals. Okay, fine. So they took some blood. <laughs> um, so they were nice. They woke you up at 7 a.m. The one hospital I was in um, oh, no, in no, no. My, my youth, it was at like 5 a.m. They, they wouldn't well, even really bother was, waking you. They just this was, grab this was your the, arm. Well, oh, hold on. This is the emergency unit, though. So they were kind of nice about it because when, I, when it was like 1 a.m., they did my vitals and then they did it again yeah. at seven. So they did like a six hour jump or whatever. And um, they were like, okay, well, you're going to go in an ambulance ride. It's two hours. I'm like, what? Two hours? Where am I going? <laughs> and they're like, they're like, limo. they're like, we can't tell you that yet. What? What do you mean you can't tell me where I'm going? So I'm like, I'm kind of like freaking out. And they're like, okay, well, do you like need something to relax? I'm thinking they're going to let me listen to some music. I'm like, yeah, let me get some of that. And they sedate me. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so um, I'm on my way to the hospital. I'm in and out of sleep. And um, when I get there, there, there was a really, really nice lady. I loved her. Um, she was very respectful. She complimented my tattoos. And she's like, I don't have the balls to tattoo myself. I'm like, me. I do, girly. <laughs> um and so she was really sweet about it, but I got a physical, there was that, and then I got a tour of the unit. On the wall, there was a schedule that seemed like a really nice schedule. You know, there was some group therapies, there was like 30 minutes of outside time here, 30 minutes of outside time here. I'm thinking outside time is like we get to go take a walk into town or something, like Girl Interrupted. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, this is great. So one of the phones didn't work. And then the other phone only worked if you like picked it up correctly. It was so fucking annoying. And there were, I think there were about 25 of us on that unit. And all of us were trying to make calls during the day. So mm. <laughs> it was so obnoxious. Um, when I got there, there was a really rude lady who, I don't even, I don't know if she was racist or if she was just extremely fucking stupid, but this woman who was Hispanic, I don't know exactly what, um, uh, where from, but she had a slight accent and, you know, me being Hispanic, I could understand it. And, you know, everybody else in the room could understand it and not all, all of us were Hispanic. So it's very clear that she was able to speak English. And the lady just kept interrupting her. And she's like, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't get it. What are you, what are you telling me? What, what is happening? I'm like, what? And so I was like, what, what is your, I'm like shaking at this point. And I'm like, what is your problem? Like, I'm, I'm like, what? And she's like, oh, well, what's your name? And I tell her, and I guess they didn't put my preferred name on the attendance sheet. 
So she's calling out like names. And then she was like, are any of these your names? And I was like, no, it's Colton. And I was like, and then I told her my last name, which I, you know, I go by that legal last name anyway. And um, she was like, oh, so it's dead name. I was like, no, it's Colton. That's just my legal name, but you're not calling me my legal name. You're calling me Colton. And it was like a back and forth for four minutes. And I tossed a chair across the room and I stormed off. <laughs> and then three nurses came. I, I stormed off and three nurses, I was sitting on my bed and I was like having a meltdown. I was like, I can't do this. Like I just got here. It wasn't even 10 minutes. And um, I was like, she really pissed me off. And they're like, okay, we're going to report her, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And a social worker did end up coming to talk to me about it. They were really good about it. Um, that's like the only thing they were good about. The food sucked. The eggs tasted like rubber. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> there was so many, there's, there's just so much that happened. And it's like, in such a small amount of time, I just can't. <laughs> I've only ever been to like two different hospitals. The first one was the one I kept going back to. I literally was just like in my hometown in our shitty hospital on the third floor wing that nobody ever goes to. They have this psychiatric unit run by these brothers who just so happened to be psychiatrists. And they literally labeled 90% of their patients with bipolar disorder, red flag number one. And the repeaters, which was typically the homeless in the wintertime, they would go check themselves in because free food and you're out of the cold. Right, so exactly. They're way too smart. They did it every winter they, and they didn't care because they had Medicaid. And if they yeah. didn't have Medicaid, the hospital would help them get Medicaid, right? My God, that's another thing. They would tell <laughs> you, they would tell you, you're going to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Watch. Like anybody who came in, it didn't care if you came in with substance abuse issues or anything. Like most of the people, unless they had schizophrenia and really bad like hallucinations they got labeled immediately with bipolar disorder they put me on lexapro my first day there i didn't even speak to a fucking doctor for the first three days i was there for a week they told me i was going to be there for 72 hours and then they were like oh well okay and i was like when am i going to be released and they're like oh well we're, we have to see you have to talk to a doctor or whatever i was like okay fine so i told i told my mom and she was like yeah whatever and then i asked them again and my mom was like, no, like put me on the phone. Cause she, my mom was pissed. Like she was like, I'm not having this. And um, like I was having meltdowns every day and they were always like putting it on my marker as like, oh, like not attending group therapy. It's fucking anything you did that they didn't like, whether you were not complying or you weren't eating. I swear to God. Anyways, go on. <laughs> they would keep you there longer if you didn't want to like, I'm like, nah, Nana, I'm tired of burnout. I'm going to like just sleep for you out for a few hours and like you're gonna end up staying here longer if you don't like follow this routine every single day i'm like bro i'm they bored to force <laughs> they, they try to force, to force you they try to go to force me to go to a christian aa meeting a fucking christian aa meeting i was literally i <laughs> they were like i was like i'm not doing this they're like oh well it's a group activity you have to i was like a group activity what group activity is a christian aa meeting i'm not i don't even drink like what is this and she's like, well, if you have other family members, it could help. I was like, this isn't about my family members. Like, <laughs> what is happening here? And the only way I was able to get out of it is by telling them I had religious trauma, which isn't a lie. So the first time I was in the hospital, 
it was because I tried to unalive myself and I got carted off in an ambulance because I was I was done for I flatlined apparently in the ambulance but because I chose to take substances to uh try that they treated me like a drug addict the entire time no, nothing else in my system besides the over prescribed anxiety medication and Tylenol PMs oh yeah I don't know how that that uh, psychiatrist kept her job but yeah um and they that was what about three months total a month in the ICU and then the next two months I was in the behavioral unit mental behavioral unit and that entire it cracked me up because that entire time I'm treated like a drug addict but my oldest brother who is a drug addict like he's currently in active addiction when he would go check himself into this hospital he would get to be there for the three days and then check himself out and leave. He'd go sober up, you know, because he could tell he was like on the verge of OD and if he just did it one more time, sober up for three days, Toby, and then check himself out. When I was ready to go home after a month, they was like, if you sign yourself out, we're gonna take you to court and we're gonna tell the courts that you're mentally unstable and then you're gonna get sent, and this is in Ohio, you're gonna get sent to like Akron, Ohio hospital, which is like a few hours away from my hometown I was like I'm not I'm not even doing this nope. no that's yeah I that's what scared that was the scariest part is that they sent me like so far because then it's not like it was easy access if an emergency happened and like I was like what the fuck and the visiting hours were for one hour or not even it was it was it was technically for one hour but they were late letting up the visitors so they took 15 minutes of our time and then they cut it short. And my mom was like, my mom and my friend were like, no, we're not leaving for another 15 minutes. <laughs> Especially like driving that far. I wouldn't want to waste that time. I was fortunate. Like I was 10 minutes from my dad's house. I was across the other side of town. So like when my family came to see me, it was fine and peachy. But oh my God, no, I could not. Yeah, it was, it was a mess. Um, when they, when they made me take Lexapro, I'm really, I was paying close attention to like how they were like, when I got, when I first got there, I was like, okay, how are they, you know, treating patients with pills? How are they treating patients when they do this and that so that I can know what to expect? So I was noticing that they weren't checking patients mouth to make sure they swallowed the pills. I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah, I got this in the bag. So I was spitting out all of the Lexapro that they were giving me. And one of the um, patients who were in there with me, um, she was lovely. She was so sweet. She was like, what, did you just do that? I'm like, they're not, I'm not taking this. Like, <laughs> like you think I'm going to take this just because they gave it to me. I'm, they literally won't let me go. So what I found out was that the the, what they told me was, oh, we have to, you come in for 72 hours and you stay here to rest. After those 72 hours, we do an evaluation. Once that evaluation is processed in another like two days, then you're going to see another doctor. So they were kind of pushing everything so they can make me stay longer. So what I found out was that they were trying to keep me for seven days. And then they found out that my insurance didn't cover my fucking mental health. So they kicked me out. They're like, okay, you're getting released. And usually they only release people on like a Monday or like Monday through Saturday, but they let me out on a Sunday and or they were supposed to, but they ended up not doing it, um, which is wild because my mom, my mom drove, drove halfway there. And then I was like, oh yeah, they said they're not releasing me till tomorrow. She's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs>
that's it. You got to think too in hospital days, when they tell you things, you got to count it as business days. You can't count them weekend days. And that like, people would be so excited and they'd count weekend. I'm like, no, no, like I'm a reoccurring visitor. I'm going to tell you right now how it goes. They also, what I will say, if somebody is looking into going into a psych ward is that you have to really pay attention to what they give you because they will gaslight you into signing anything like they will convince you it's for your it's for your well-being they'll convince you it's for this it's for that if you don't understand it get somebody to help you understand it and break it down for you like ask for a social worker ask for someone to go over paperwork with you like don't just sign it just because you don't want to be an inconvenience you're in there because you're supposed to be getting help if you're not getting help then they're not doing their job and that's a red flag <laughs> Very much. And while we would love to say that everyone in these hospitals are there to help us, not everyone is in for the right reason, while there is plenty of people that aren't in it for the right mm-hmm. reason, it still helps to be educated and have a better understanding. I know in the hospital that I was in, the doctors were, and I still, this is my opinion, that these doctors were in it for the money and still they label everyone in this hometown with similar diagnosis. And which I just don't feel like it's possible for everybody in the same area to have the same diagnosis. It's just weird. I understand we drank water out of the Ohio River growing up, but (laughs) then the technicians, a lot of them, since I grew up in this town, knew my dad or I went to high school with them or like my siblings went to high school with them. And they'd like, listen, we're going to tell you straight up. We're going to tell you straight up right now. And they weren't going to bullshit me. But I appreciate those people, especially the one girl who graduated with my oldest brother. And the first night I was there, before they put me in the ICU, they went, I was tripping. Like, I do not recall any of this. I was tripping so bad. They put me first straight up in the behavioral unit before my talk screenings came back. I that idea. Um, the girl said that I sat up in the middle of my sleep when she came to check on me. And I was like throwing up neon green and it was like the exorcist she's like i have no idea what you took but it was neon green i said a lot of stitches drop and a lot of tylenol pm and she's like (laughs) she goes that it might explain neon green but i'm still thankful for her because i ruined her favorite pair of shoes there are so many times there's another thing is that you know a lot of the time they don't care if you're sick like i there are so many times where i passed out from either being mentally or physically unwell. And they only caught it one time. And that's because we were going from the unit to the cafeteria. And I was like, I'm really lightheaded. And one of the nurses who, her name was Hannah, she was lovely. She was like, um, she was like, oh, um, maybe you should sit down. I was like, okay. And then like a few minutes later, I guess I ended up passing out. And she was like, I gave you a sternum rub, like you're good. But that I think that was the only time out of like the 15 times that I passed out that they caught it. And like a few times I was in like the common room and like the um, like other patients that were there were like, are you okay? Like the, they caught it, not the techs. Like the techs were sitting there on their phones, like they're doing whatever, like they're not, they weren't even trying. Like some, some of the group therapies, they put 90s rap music on the TV what is that <laughs> like I don't spend most of your time playing Monopoly and coloring <laughs> Please. 
Our thing was Uno. We we had Uno. We had like a Monopoly game going for like a week one time, and we literally, we literally like when we had to put everything away. There was one person who kept note of who had how much money and where our houses were and everything because he's like, we can't give up. See, that's 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 the best part is you know the the people that you meet, the friendships that you build. There was one time this woman. She came in intoxicated and extremely violent, and she just decided she didn't like my face. She's like, this prissy little bitch, I'm going to fight her. And I was like, bro, I don't have the patience for this, okay? I'm just here to escape reality for a week and, like, you know, get myself in check. I don't have time. And then, like, after three days from her, like, you know, come down, she finally comes out of the room. She's like, I thought you wanted to fight me. And I was like, why would I want to fight you? I don't even know you. Like, I had a similar situation. I was, um, uh, there was one girl, this was like maybe my third or fourth day. And, um, she came in very, she came in the night before and she was screaming at all the texts. Like no one could sleep. I was having a panic attack because I get triggered by yelling and like, it was a mess. And, um, she was like she was like throwing chairs in the common room which i don't even know how she picked up those fucking chairs because those things were wood and they were hard like they were difficult to pick up and um and she was just like have like she had it out for someone or everyone and the next morning she was at the um at the phone and she was getting really pissed because it wasn't working and i was like oh that one sometimes works she's like what the fuck did you say to me i was like damn I'm just trying to help like the phone right there like that one kind of works and she was like oh okay and then this was after my um like my medical episode of me passing out in the cafeteria and uh they ended up getting me a wheelchair and they're like you're gonna stay in the wheelchair for the rest of like the time that you're here I'm like all right I'm not complaining like (laughs) I'm an ambulance like I'm an ambulatory wheelchair like I used to use forearm crutches like I use mobility aids anyway um so uh i was in and like this girl was suddenly so nice and she was like can i push your wheelchair like can we hang out like i was like sure like i don't care <laughs> i mean yeah so what would be the next point of the topic you wanted to talk about based on your experience you talked about your experience in the hospital talked about um the discovery of your diagnosis um you want to talk about more of like your parents and what it was like growing up with parents who don't, you know, believe in the mental health thing and how you feel like that really challenged you in a way? Yeah. So when I was growing up, um, not only did my family kind of, everyone knew that there was some kind of issue, but no one really accepted the fact that, you know, they had issues because that means that they would have to take accountability. (laughs) Um, And um, it's really, I, I find it really um, not so much funny, haha, but funny, like, oh, damn. But um, uh, that BPD is actually the inverse of NPD with narcissistic personality disorder. Um, so growing up with, you know, not only narcissistic parents, but then also a sister who is kind of triangulated in the mix. My sister's older than me. Um, she's nine years older than me. So that's kind of a huge gap. Um, and all I remember growing up is that my sister and my mom fought a lot. And then, um, 
the other parent was kind of just emotionally unavailable all the time. Um, unless it had to do with, you know, something that he took interest to, which was judging people. <laughs> and um, if you kind of didn't, you know, go along with that, he didn't really have anything, you know, to do with you. Um, he didn't want anything to do with you. So having those kinds of parents, um, it was hard, uh, not only because I, they were, you know, divorced after when I was eight, um, but both parents, um, it was kind of hard for me to connect the dots as to which boundaries are appropriate for which parent. Like with one of my parents, I wasn't allowed to curse, you know, when I was 12. Um, you know, I had to watch my mouth. I had to be respectful. I basically had to, I couldn't dress like, you know, a certain way because, um, you know, it's with narcissism, it's, it's all about them. So you reflect on their image. So if I, oh, I can't be seen with you wearing makeup like that. I, I can't be seen with you dressed like that. So that had a damper on my self-worth. Um, and uh, a lot of, um, it was also hard for me, you know, to process emotions and cope with emotions because I had, you know, parents that would say things like stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, which is a very common yet subtle threat that's given to children um, to basically shut down their emotions and um, kind of force them to behave in the way that you want them to behave in the situation. And like, yeah, maybe a kid throwing like a fit isn't okay in a certain situation, but what is, what is that child lacking that, you know, is causing them to have this fit? And that's what a lot of, you know, parents don't think about. I mean, luckily, one of my parents, like I said, is, you know, healing and, you know, understanding. And it, it takes a while, but um, it's, it's definitely really difficult because then when you grow up, you're not able to, you know, you, ever, you see everybody else having healthy relationships. You see everybody else, you know, being able to, um, move past things very quickly. Um, and, um, you know, not stuck on a, a certain emotion until, you know, and then mood swings. It's just all of these different things that I was experiencing just didn't fit with societal norms. So I'm like, it has to be like my, it has to be something wrong with me. That was my, that was the overall umbrella that was kind of causing all of these other issues in my childhood. I can relate to you when you talk about like um, your other parent, the one you don't speak with being like, I'll give you something to cry about. Cause my dad's famous words were good being a pussy. Yeah. Um, I was the only girl in a house full of boys. So, and being raised by a single father, that's the only like outlook I had. Like I played baseball with the boys. I dressed tomboyish, whatever. Mm -hmm. That was my life. And I couldn't have emotions. So I would seek out, and I've talked about this on my TikTok a few times, I would seek out motherly relationships within my, my friends. I only had like two solid friends growing up. I could not keep friends for the life of me. <laughs> but I was, I, I was, I hated other girls. I would just, I would fight with them. I didn't like their attitudes, whatever, but there was only two I could, I kept. And I tell them this all the time. I tell their moms this all the time. I sought motherly relationships from their mothers. And then even my best friend now, I'm close with her mom, more close than her mom than the biological mother. So I understand 
where you come from on the Quipina pussy type of attitude from yeah. a from a parent. I will say my dad, and I tell him this all the time, that I'm proud of him because he's a yeller. You mentioned you don't like being yelled at. I understand that as well. Um, I learned in therapy a trick, and this worked on my ex-husband, who is a narcissist. Um, if you're going to yell at me, I will not listen. When you calm down, we can come back to this conversation. I started doing that to my dad once I like reached a peak age of like, I'm an adult now. You don't have the right to yell at me or speak to me in that way. You did it when I was younger and you don't now. But like now I have the balls to stand up for myself. So that is right. even in the workplace, I've had people yell at me. There's this particular person I do not like to deal with in the workplace. And I'm like, if you're going to yell at me, I'm not going to deal with it. Right. You have the right to step away. So that is something I don't know if you've applied that to yourself, but maybe it would be helpful. And I understand you get so anxiety and like want to shut down when someone raises their voice just like the greatest thing ever is to just like give yourself a deep breath and like we can continue this conversation later and i'll do with my own kid when he wants to yell for whatever reason i'm like come back in five minutes we'll have this conversation later yeah i've done that with one of my parents and um at the time it worked um and you know when i they they would kind of just go on tangents after the argument was over, just trying to get every word they can in. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just, I'm completely ignoring them. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not acknowledging you until like, you know, you are willing to have a civil conversation with me. Um, and, you know, once, once those tangents are over, they're kind of just like, well, what now? Like, where do I go with this? Like their only option is to, you know, be civil with it. Um, however, narcissists, unlike people pleasers, have a lot of tools in their toolbox. And um, a lot of the time they'll do what's called being, uh, they'll, they'll project. And um, for those who don't know what projecting is, projecting is basically where they take their insecurities and issues that they have with themselves. And they basically say that you're doing those things or you're making them feel that way. So uh, this parent would project and say, oh, you're being dismissive. What? Because I'm not going to let you scream at me. Like <laughs> I'm being dismissive because I won't let you talk to me like this. Like that's not so, you know, it's kind of just you have to bring them back to the initial like you have to bring them back to the core thing. Like this is what is happening. This is the reality because they're kind of like they don't they're not paying attention to what's happening they're paying attention to me 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 they they want to like run you in that circle and get you confused like yeah i would in my marriage this would happen all the time and kylie was if she was listening or here right now she would be able to back me up on this my entire marriage she was pretty much there for it and i would like send her videos of me crying of like what's going on and she's like this is insane. Like you're, you're trying to talk about one thing and they're running in circles about something that's completely different to throw you off of your reality. When you're with a narcissistic person or you have a narcissistic parent, your reality is not the actual reality. Like you're just, mm-hmm. it's like, I have long-term memory issues from going through that for two years. So I could only imagine having to grow up with a narcissistic parent already having um, mental health things aside from 
the emotional or physical abuse from narcissistic parents, but then like, and it's proven, it's scientific proven that narcissism, victims of narcissism, they, they end up with memory loss yeah. because of that confusion of cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not only that, but it's, you have, you have your, your lowercase T trauma and your uh, upper, your, your capital T trauma, capital T trauma are things like war and fights and things like that. Like things that are um, uh, kind of life or death situations where like, you're not sure if like you might make it through this, which it might feel like that with like screaming. I mean, I've certainly felt that way. Like five years ago, I used to be the biggest people pleaser on the planet. Like, (laughs) um, definitely like no shame to anybody who experiences it that way but um it's just you you yeah it's it's hard it's really hard um and I feel like what parents don't do there's let's see so it, the book what happened to you it's by Dr. Perry um and Oprah Winfrey and it's a great book it's like a collective of conversations that they've had about trauma-informed care and um, he kind of talks about how um, stress is like a demand or challenge that puts our body like out of regulation, our body or our mind. So when you're growing up in a healthy environment, you know, your parents always tell you, listen to your body, you know, set boundaries, things like that. If your parents are responsible parents, not everyone's perfect, but in an ideal world, this is what your parent would do. Um, and if they, you know, kind of go to unhealthy ways of trying to enforce that. So instead of saying, listen to your body, oh, finish your food, like clear your plate, don't waste food, things like that. Instead of telling them to set boundaries. Oh, you know, a lot of people, which I really hate is they'll be like, oh, come give grandma a kiss, give grandma a kiss or she'll be sad. That it's like, you're, you're kind of telling the kid do this or I'm going to feel a certain type of way. And that's emotional manipulation. Um, and, you know, tell, if kids are seeking help for their mental health issues or their physical health issues, telling them, oh, well, then I guess I'm such a bad parent then, right? If you're just, if you're depressed, I'm such a bad parent or, um, you know, oh, you're fine. Like you're like just kind of minimizing their experiences. That's the thing. Those are the things that cause someone to grow up with um, mental health issues and they don't see so they don't see themselves as, you know, worthy of even existing on the planet. In our house, we we believe in um, gentle parenting, but I feel like people, when they see gentle parenting or they think of gentle parenting, it's like parent being a pushover and not setting those boundaries. Right. There, we have a typical child in the household, and then we have an autistic child in the household. So the, the challenges between teaching the two boundaries are complete opposite I'm sure and they're only six months apart in age so it's even more wild so Kylie's daughter is a typical typical three-year-old she just turned three I would say intellectually emotionally she is very intelligent for her age and she understands everything just about everything you're telling her like we do breath work exercises yeah like when she's overstimulated or she's wanting to scream or she don't understand that instead of screaming and crying that she wants something, just use your words. Where mm-hmm. little little man here grunts and growls 
like a, a dog or a bear or whatever, he's getting there. We're getting some words in. I'm teaching him boundaries. He likes to eat drywall. He has feedback. Teaching Got him, it. do not eat the drywall and redirection might happen a thousand times before he's like, fine, I give up. Where right. you tell Kylie's daughter, hey, Hobie, that's not cool. Like, let's not eat that. Let's go eat this. She's fine. It's like, it's so, so yeah. much more relaxed. Yeah. But it's it's a fun adventure, I think, parenting. And I tried, so my dad's, you have, you said that you have a huge age gap in your family. So and there's also a huge age gap in my family. My dad's oldest is in his 30s. Okay. I'm 25. I'm like in the middle. And then yeah. the youngest just turned 12 this past September. Huge age gap. Okay. Yeah. Like, so the 12 year old, I was helping take care of. I was in middle school when he was born. I was helping take care of since the beginning. So, I was parenting this child. My dad works in a coal mine. You know, sh- that's that's a lot of time away from home. His mom, not the best circumstances. So I was primary caregiver for him, um, at least in my opinion. I'm sure some other people would disagree. But in my opinion, I was primary <laughs> caregiver way too young. And even him at an early age, I was teaching breath work because our dad's a yeller. That is so anxiety inducing. And while he's doing better with it, he's still a yeller. It's like he can't stop himself. He's just so old at this point. It's like he's trying, but like it's still gonna slip out. Like he's like, yeah. I'm old, I'm sick all the time. It's just gonna happen. And I'll catch myself. I'm like, oh, M, bring it back in. Bring yeah. it. You are not your trauma. Bring it back in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There are, there are moments and I'm, I'm, I don't know if this is, you know, me, I find it interesting too, because this is the one thing that I still question is, um, I'm very, very self-aware whenever I'm, you know, euphoric or if I'm depressed or if I'm going through an episode or if I'm nauseous or I need whatever, I'm very, very aware. And I think that comes from a lack of, you know, my needs being met as a kid, because, you know, if my caregiver, um, let's say, uh, let's say, for example, um, if you have, you have like a very episodically, um, responsive caregiver, the child isn't going to know what to expect. So they kind of have to self-soothe and self-regulate, which is, you know, how dissociation is made. But I'm also wondering if that's, you know, why, because when I was really young, everybody's like, you're so independent. You're so smart for your age. And it's like, yeah, homie, it's called trauma. <laughs> for the, the famous of you're, you're so mature. Huh? You're still, yep. Yeah, yeah, I am mature. And then you hit adulthood and you're like, I am not mature. I'm going to make very bad decisions. And I feel like we all go through that once we hit adulthood. But still, like being told you're mature. And then once you hit like the reality of adulthood, you're like, I know what I'm doing here. I am not mature. Yeah. And I think, I think the worst part about it all is that because I'm so self-aware, when I am self-destructive, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like I'm fucking myself over, but why? Like I know I'm doing it. And I like, I'm just it's uh it's the most confusing thing ever it's it's not only confusing but like in the moment depending on what it is it can be terrifying <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you when I was around your age because I am now 25 when I'm going like post high school 
is like as soon as I turned 18 my dad could not like control me except for like a curfew because I lived in his house so if I wasn't coming home I would tell him but like that post 18 19 year old me and then when I moved out of home for the first time was so destructive and most people I feel like want to do drugs at that point no I was destructive in other ways I personally did not do the drugs except for smoking marijuana, which is legal in the state of Ohio now, by the way. Good thing for Ohio. One good thing that they've done legislative here uh, lately. Sorry. But <laughs> you're okay. But um, other than that, my self-destruction came in um, validation seeking from from men a lot older than me so if anyone young is listening or anyone at all has that like thing where they feel the need to seek validation by people that are way older than them and doing things it's just as harmful as drugs do absolutely not do it do not do it okay I have done so many things when I moved out of call when I moved out of my mom's place for the first time I was like fuck yeah I'm going to college it's the time to experience like I'm experiencing life for the first time without any you know no one to control me they they can't do anything like no one I basically had a god complex I'm like no one can fucking touch me so (laughs) I ended up doing a lot of um you know like sexually self-endangering things constant you know random you know sleepovers with guys and I have daddy issues so and that like didn't... tinder is just popping off in oh yeah time frames. like you're freshly 18 like, it's exactly. great it's great and there was one time that now I know never to smoke another person's weed um <laughs> and I'm not gonna go too much into detail but I will say it was very traumatic and I didn't actually know I was laced with anything until the next morning <laughs> and there's just like so many times where I've been self-destructive and my friends are like I think you just need to take a break and I'm like no that's the last thing I need like I just like I think my whole there was one point where I had a depressive episode but the rest of my college experience was just pure euphoria because it was the first time in my life that I didn't have anybody around me to either you know tell me what to do or to you know um oh here's a curfew or you have to be home by this time or I have to ask permission to stay out you know because even though legally I was an adult if I was under this parent's roof, it was just not up for discussion. Like I had to follow those rules. I like, I think the first time I spoke to my dad was like right after my 18th birthday. It was before I graduated high school, but like it was right after my 18th birthday. My birthday's in April. So it was like a couple months before graduation. And I said, dad, I'm going to this party tonight. And I'm not coming home because I'm being a DD. That I don't know if you do, but at least where I'm from in Ohio in the tri-state area, um, there is parties that happen in abandoned houses in the middle of fields and in the woods, okay? This first party, I'm telling my dad, I'm being a DD. This is exactly where we're going. Like, I'm being, I'm 18, but I'm telling you just in case of emergency or not. I got cussed fucked out and told I was going to ruin my life for being a DD for this person. And I'm like, you know what, dad? I'm 18 now. And my stepmom was like, Ed, let her go. She never does anything. She doesn't have any friends outside of school. Just let her go. And you know what? Best party of my life. And I was sober. See, that's the thing 
I, I never had those experience. Number one, no one liked me when I was in grade school. Cause when I'm in, when you're in New York, I mean, I'm sure this is similar to like a lot of other places, but specifically New York, because you know, Manhattan is so small. There's only so many schools you can go to. So the kids that didn't like me in elementary school went with me to middle school or they had friends that went there and they told their friends stories or rumors or whatever. And then their friends didn't like me. And then I went to high school and then those people came into my high school like because it was just such a close circle, especially because I was an art student. There's only so many places you can go. Um, so. I wasn't, I, I didn't really have that experience, but that's why when I was in college, I was like, I need to get the fuck out. Like, I need to do shit. That's like, soon as my uncle, I lived with my uncle for almost two years in Eastern Pennsylvania. Alan, but for a minute, like, he, they were like, hey, why don't you just like move out here with us and get out of the small town? Cause he grew up in this area and he was like, this place is awful and you're going to waste your time here. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, now, a year and a half later, ended up pregnant with Ambrose and then, like, moved back. But still, that was still a fun learning experience. Like, I had the, well, paying rent to my uncle was doing yard work and, like, laborious things outside or in his office. He's a lawyer. And then on top of working my regular job and I went to school part-time. I dropped out of college, like, four times at this point. But, like, I feel for anyone who feels stuck in their small town or hometown I always preach it go go yeah you got no, get out. even if you don't have like much money and you're just lucky to have a vehicle buy go yeah just go I, I will say you do have to take into into English is hard <laughs> I do say you have to take in, into consideration you know the fact that anything can happen you know if you're crashing at you know a friend's house or you know if I had a situation where I I this was in December so this was very recently um I had a plan that I was going to move in with my best friend who I've known from college and we're literally platonic soulmates like we can't be separated um and I was like I'm going to move in with them and I'm going to go back to school and it's going to be great because I wasn't able to go back to college at the time and um when I moved in no one had told their stepdad who owns the house that I was coming so not only was I kicked out, um, but, you know, it also put my friend in a, a kind of dangerous situation as well. So, you know, you always have to have a plan A, B, and C if you do plan on, like, getting out on your own. And there are plenty of, like, shelters and, like, resources for people who, you know, suffer narcissistic abuse, things like that. Um, you just got to find them. That's another thing is that retail jobs um, are really difficult when you have BPD. Um, cause there's, you know, so many people and you have all different kinds of people with different attitudes and with BPD, one person, like one Karen can make or break your whole day. When I was working in retail, I couldn't keep a job for more than two or three months. Like it was awful. Unfortunately, the only jobs I can keep are retail. I have tried any type of office job or like food. I hate working food don't even I don't want to work near bread never again I had an office job the people it lasted two weeks because the people in the office were like too bougie and thought they're better than everybody else they literally I quit I quit after week two I was like we're sick and then I never went back <laughs> and then I ended up back in retail so it's you know I wish I could have like a nice little desk job but I don't think it's for me it's, 
see my thing is dogs that's that's how i i'm a dog trainer so i you know i bond with dogs i get to educate people about dogs like it's that's that's the one thing that i feel like i can do without burning out as fast as everything else now for a quick ad break kylie and i are avid coffee drinkers i mean i can't leave for work without coffee and kylie literally works in a coffee shop so you could say we are a little bit obsessed especially when it comes to javi coffee which is a coffee concentrate that comes in many different flavors and it's super quick and easy to use mix with your milk of choice and ice then you're on your way we have a great deal for you guys for just a limited time, 25% off. Just click the link listed in the show notes. Again, that's 25% off your first purchase. Check the link listed in the show notes and try Javi today. Oh, I guess you were comfortable. What has your treatment plan been like? Um, so I, when I came out of the psychiatric unit in August, um, I talked to a, uh, therapist about, you know, possible treatment plans going forward. Um, the best thing that I had heard for BPD is both psychiatry, all three psychiatry therapy and medication. Um, the medication won't work if you don't see a psychiatrist or you don't go to therapy and the therapy and psychiatry won't work if you don't have meds to balance it out. Um, so really as of right now, it's, you know, just finding medical health professionals that, you know, don't have a incredibly long year long wait list. <laughs> there's like a link between like BPD and then like trauma and then narcissistic parenting. Do you think like their parenting had like a huge effect on like developing BPD or is there like something else with it too? So I think it, I think that's, yeah, pretty much. Um, BPD is a traumagenic disorder. So when you're growing up, if you have, you know, either unstable care, like an unstable relationship to your caregivers um, and your needs aren't being met. And usually it's through being raised with a narcissistic parent um, because BPD is actually inverse of narcissistic personality disorder. Um, so if you're being raised by narcissistic parents, you know, not only are your needs not being met, but you're also, you know, being manipulated and gaslit and, um, you're just kind of constantly walking on eggshells and struggles. Um, and then over time that, you know, kind of leads to unstable relationships, um, mood swings, you know, you're not able to regulate emotions. You're not able to process them correctly. Um, I'm, I dissociate. I'm not 100% sure if everybody with BPD is disassociate, uh, dissociates, um, but because my caregivers when I was younger were so episodically responsive, um, I, as a child, I wasn't sure what to expect. So I would have to self-suit with, you know, dissociation or solve problem solving my own ways. Um, I know there's like a really bad stigma around BPD. Um, have you faced any of that stigma and how do you go about um, dealing with it? Yeah, I have. Um, when I was first diagnosed with it, um, the parent that I was living with didn't want to accept it um, because of the stigma behind it. And I was pretty much labeled um, as abusive. I was labeled as toxic, dismissive. Um, and it's really hard because especially a big trait with BPD is that we're very pathological liars. We lie a lot. Um, and a lot of the time it's hard to take accountability for that lying because you know you're gonna you know get in trouble for it or something because when you're a child 
the parent, the narcissistic parent will get mad at you either way you're telling the truth or not. So right. over time, I learned the truth doesn't matter. Um, and it's because, uh, because I was labeled as toxic and dismissive, the real, only real way I was able to, um, I mean, if it was somebody on the street, you know, and I was talking about my BPD over the phone or to somebody that I was with, you know, it's not really any of those, that business of that stranger. So I kind of just brush it off and I try not to pay too much attention to it. Um, if it's in a more professional setting, it won't be addressed at all. I'm not, you know, telling anybody that I have BPD for my own safety, um, because of those stigmas. And when it comes to family, if they're not willing to understand, that's kind of just a topic that we have to glaze over. Um, and it's kind of, it's, it's hard because when you have, when you finally have an explanation for how you've been behaving and how you, you know, interact with the world and someone denies it, or someone says that you're abusive or somebody makes assumptions based off what they see in media, it's really hard to get their perception of that out of their head because then they're kind of programmed just to see your symptoms as that. So what I did with the parent that I was living with, um, who's now trying to understand to the best of their ability and doing wonderfully, um, how I was explaining BPD um, was through sharing videos of people who were also diagnosed with BPD and sharing, look, this is an experience that I have. And it's not just me, it's other people with BPD. Um, with narcissistic parents, a lot of the time they'll say that your um, issues are like excuses. So I kind of just had to show them a different point of view. But you were talking about like your narcissistic parent, you started turning around from where they watched like videos and then started learning from it. Are they the same parent or are they separate parents? Um, it was the same parent when I started doing it when I was really little, not really little, but when I had access to things at the time it was musically and things like Instagram and I would send them, um, videos by, you know, other parents about how gentle parenting or, you know, changing your parenting dynamic, um, will affect your child. And, um, at first, you know, because the narcissist doesn't want to take, um, responsibility um, it was kind of just brushing it off as I don't need other people telling me how to parent. Um, but as I got older, um, and the more I pushed it, um, the more they kind of realized that my perspective matters because, you know, their whole thing was, I'm the parent, you're the child. And, um, well, that one hurts. My mom told me that all the time growing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm the parent, you're the child, things like that. Um, and it, it, takes away not only the child's sense of worth, but also how the, the child thinks about the world around them. Because if they don't matter, then that means that they, you know, aren't, oh, I won't get hired for that job. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to get that scholarship. So I'm not even, they're, they're not going to apply themselves because they don't think they're, they're valuable enough. Um, so sending the, sending videos like that um, from, you know, people who have BPD children and therapists who treat BPD, um, kind of other people's experiences. And it's kind of the way that I put it was like, you're not alone because that's what I needed to hear when I was going through all of this, when I was experiencing it. Um, so I kind of, you know, explained to the parent, you know, you're not alone in not knowing how to handle BPD, but like there are resources 
And I feel like when I got diagnosed, it was a lot easier for that parent to accept it and kind of dig more into it because then it, there was a professional aspect in the mix. Um, and I feel like that was the biggest issue because when I was growing up, I used to get told, oh, like you have Munchausen syndrome and like not even diagnosed, but like they were diagnosing me with it or saying I had it. Um, be- yeah, because I was always, when I was a child, I mean, when you go through trauma, there's like a, a thing that people say is that when you know you go through trauma, when you want more trauma, like no one who goes through trauma wants trauma. Um, and the reasoning behind that is because if your trauma isn't validated, you're constantly thinking, well, what could make them accept this? Like, what would, like, what would, what would push the boundaries as to what's acceptable as far as trauma? When I got diagnosed with PTSD, I had family members that tell me, oh, you weren't in war, so you can't possibly have it. I'm like, that's not how this works. I'm not diagnosed with autism, but it's, we know I'm, we know I have it. Like, my therapist said that it's very, like it's very thing. likely it's a, it's, a, it's a genetic thing too so it's funny because when I first started talking to my dad um like hey dad I think like Ambrose has autism or like he definitely has some learning delays you know to my dad autism looks so different than the variety the spectrum of what it is because we grew up with someone um my grandmother's best friend's son um who's on the spectrum and it was very stereotypical of a sense of autism and not what we see on a daily with the variety of spectrum because of course there's many people with autism and you wouldn't even think twice about it right um and my dad was like but I do those things that's normal behavior all of you kids didn't talk till x amount of time or whatever and I was like hey dad these things are genetic I was like how come you can do math so quickly in your head <laughs> like come on, how come you got a photographic memory? And right. then and I was like, also, what's the thing where you gag when you touch microfiber? Like, <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah. you can't that's, say I'm that's autistic. A color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am autistic. And then we look at my grandfather, um, rest his soul. He has similar things as well, especially with the math. I don't know what, the math so quick on the map like he would get rage filled when I couldn't like I didn't understand math the way he did or quickly enough like my brother Tommy would be done with his homework in five minutes he got it meanwhile I'm reading the same question 12 times before my grandfather's like Emmy what are you doing (laughs) I don't I don't know I don't get it I don't understand that four plus four is eight half I don't get it okay Growing up, I had a tutor who was autistic and doing math especially was always so difficult because we were like different kinds of autistics. So I would have a meltdown and he'd be sitting there like, I don't understand why this is so hard. Like, and it just like, he would always take like a 30 minute break and just like chill out for a minute and then come back to it. Yeah. Like my happy, oh my gosh, he would tell everybody this story too. When we were kids, my best friend like growing up we were super little like we fell apart come mid like middle school and I was transitioning in high school but like that happens she would call like this is when you'd still go outside and play 
she would call me every, like at my grandparents' house, call every five to 10 minutes. Is Emmy done with her homework yet? Is Emmy done with her homework yet? And my best half would be like, Nikki, she is not done with her homework yet. She will call you. And be like three hours later, like it's starting to get dark outside. Emmy, are you done with your homework yet? And like her mom didn't make her do her homework right after school. But like we had to have a routine or like we wouldn't do shit. So like I was not allowed to leave that kitchen table until homework was done. Like, and that was just it. And my pappy would get so annoyed and pissed off at Nikki. Like, I'm sure on his deathbed, he was telling the stories about when Nikki wouldn't stop calling the fucking house phone <laughs> because I didn't understand my goddamn homework. <laughs> That's where we're at. <laughs> That's my enough. Kid, my kid's three and he reads better than me. I was telling you like earlier, Kylie reads, I don't. Like she has to read everything too. My kid reads better than I do. He's three. So. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing is, you know, growing up autistic and not like knowing it at the time. Um, because while autism was very prevalent on one side of the family, no one knew it. And everybody thought that autism, you know, looked like your very stereotypical um non-physical movement in a wheelchair non-verbal type thing that was their like association with autism so there was like no possible way I could be autistic and excuse you and um (laughs) and um so growing up I was always learning to mask it and there's a lot of things that I now like (laughs) I'll never forget I was laying in bed one day and this was in like 2022 and I was literally just thinking that's all I was doing I was thinking and I was thinking about this one like when I was in um, middle school I used to twirl my hair like this and everybody used to spread rumors about like oh you like to sleep with boys in the school like you slept with all the boys in the school because apparently this in neurotypical means you're flirting I was just stimming yeah I don't know. Apparently, like hair twirling is like flirting. So, I oh, was... like if you're talking to a guy and like playing with your hair, oh, yeah. In situation, yeah. Okay, okay. So, so it wasn't until I like I was literally sitting there and like the light bulb went off, and I'm like, oh my god, that's that's an autistic trait. I was like, I was stimming, like I. It was just so like. I, I had to like, ma- I would always put things in my mouth. That was another thing. So my mom like would always have to tell me, stop eating your hoodie, stop eating your hoodie strings. Like you're like, there were times where I would swallow them on the hoodie strings because I would like constantly chew on them. And um, then when I started, like when I started realizing that like you can get like um, teether toys, like as a teenager and adult and it like shouldn't be considered weird. I was like, okay, I'll do this. So I got like a really subtle one that was like a necklace. So I could just like do this. And like, that was fine. And I was good. I was great. But like, I never realized that those things were like traits that I was taught to mask because, you know, to a narcissistic parent, if I'm like stimming in public, people are going to look and people are going to judge not only the child, but also the parent. So because that has an influence on them, it's just things I wasn't allowed to do or I was limited to doing. I'm thankful my child has me because I am very vocal when he's doing his own thing and we're in the store, whether it be he's vocal swimming or 
you know, whatever while we're shopping and there's like somebody staring or like, you know, the one old person that's like, my kid would never. And I'm like, thank God it's not your fucking kid then. Like, yeah. <laughs> or like, uh, because he, he just got a haircut recently, but he had hair that was like really long for a little boy. And we always got the, oh, your little girl's so pretty. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Like, whatever. But he's, you know, as of right now, he identifies as a boy. And they're like, oh, my son never had long hair like that. And I'm like, wow, that's, it's a family thing for us. Go fuck off, you know, like whatever. <laughs> I violently advocate for my child. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I think, I think that's the thing. Because if there are, if there are gentle parents in the world, there's no chance that you're going to raise an asshole, like, <laughs> or somebody with any, like, I, I mean, everyone has, like, their issues, but, you know, you're not going to raise someone who is either struggling with themselves or struggling or is making others struggle, you know what I'm saying? Right. So, I was like, your typical kid and divergent kid, like, you see the differences, and, like, because they don't understand each other. She gets right. mad at him because he doesn't want to play the same way she plays because he plays independently. That's just him. That's what he wants to do. She always yeah. wants to hang out with him. And he's like, leave me the fuck alone. I, like, I just want to watch Blippi and line up my race cars. You can, like, be five feet away. So one and time I glance at you every two minutes. But that's it. Look, you know how, like, you were talking about, like, walking on eggshells? I think yeah. like, you walked on eggshells as kid too. So yes, two types of um, was it trauma responses? I'm very non-confrontational now. I'm such a people pleaser with how I grew up with my mom. Emmy is the exact opposite. She will say "fuck you" and "fuck them kids." Where I'm just like, I, I used to be a people pleaser until I like until I I think it was until I broke up with my crazy ex, which we're not gonna get into. Um, but. The, this was the one I was telling um I was telling Kylie earlier that this was the the one that I um she basically helped me figure out that I had BPD you know without you know before this was before way before I was diagnosed um and it was like I, I was very much a people pleaser and I very much like couldn't set boundaries like I, I was having boundaries setting trouble or I was having trouble setting boundaries with like just even random people that I would meet. Like they don't even have to be close to me. And I was just full on struggling. And um, it wasn't until like, I like broke up with my ex. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck this, fuck everyone. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm not, um, it, it kind of, I, there was a point where I realized that if I keep pleasing other people, I'm never gonna get a chance to please myself. And that was where I was like, why do I want to do that? Like, <laughs> and I know that like for a lot of people and for me for a long time, because I mean, I kept hearing that and everybody kept telling me that. And everyone was like, I know you don't want to hear it, but I know you don't want to hear it. I'm like, looking back, I'm like, yeah, it was, it, you know, it didn't really click until I had broken up um, with my ex. And then I was like, they were right. <laughs> Just a little bit. A little bit. With the with the people pleasing and the being very outspoken thing, like in my marriage, I look back and there was a lot of things early on I wasn't very outspoken with. But as soon as like I was like I've had enough, and I started to stand up for myself, he 
hated me mm-hmm. so much after that point because I was just like, I'm setting these boundaries. If you follow through, then fine, fuck you. And then after like we separated and broke up and we're like going through a divorce process, I started seeing someone else who was more covert in their narcissism. Like, you know, have you heard of the three month rule? Yeah. Okay, well, he's going with this three month rule and Kylie's making me stick to this three month rule, whatever. But like his narcissism, like we saw some tendencies but yeah. there was there was a, he was trying to work on them because he right, acknowledged it but he would acknowledge certain things but then like what what like the five or six month mark it was like it immediately it was like, yeah it was like a nightmare of like him telling me how I should dress um things that I was doing wrong like I'm very outspoken about having herpes and immediately he like was like oh I don't want you talking about it on the social media anymore. It makes me look bad. And because I would stand up for myself, we'd get into these huge fucking fights. And then he started, he like wasn't drinking as much, at least around me at first. And he turned it like in that, what, we dated for what, like six, seven months? I think so, yeah. Uh, it turned into him like blackout drunk almost every night, even when he worked. And he's in the fucking military so, like, that's even worse. He was showing up to work the next day, like, drunk. Hungover? Hung- no. Or just he drunk. Crack- he would crack a fucking drink open before he would go to PT in the morning. Shit, I didn't know that much. Oh. I remember there was one time she, I mean, was telling me he brought a flask to the store. Oh, my God. Every time we went shopping, this is insane. We're just- going off topic. Every time we went shopping... Um, I would ask him if he'd come with me, like, pick stuff out, because uh, I was starting a new job or whatever. And he brought alcohol every time. Every time God. he had a flask full of whiskey, or we'd stop at a gas station, and he would get a cup full of ice, and he'd buy some tall boys. And he'd fill that cup while driving, open container. I'm like, I don't get in the back seat. Quit. And the one time he was so pleasant. We're in the middle of Ross, and he's so fucking drunk, he's slurring his words and being obnoxious. I was like, go sit in the car. Go sit in the car. I can't believe I have to treat you like a child right now. Go sit in the car. I could not. I remember you telling me about that. I think that was my turning point where I was just like, you need to leave. I'm... Yeah. I was like, I cannot. Should have left. I should have left after I found out he was cheating on me in the same way he gave me a promise ring. But I didn't. <laughs> Yeah, you were talking about um, covert versus like overt narcissism. And what's crazy is that growing up, I had both. So one parent was very overt and it was very, um, very clear that, you know, they were emotionally unavailable and just not there. Um, And then I had the covert narcissist who I didn't realize was actually a narcissist until you know, I was, oh, I know I always like, there was something off, but I could never like, I was never able to figure it out because I didn't know that covert narcissism was a thing. I think I figured it, I think I found out it was a thing like through TikTok. And like, I know people talk so much shit about social media spreading misinformation, but when there is good information there, it's very much needed. Um, And it was like maybe two years ago. And that's when I kind of was like, oh, I see. Now this is how I have to say handle the situation. Because when you're, when, when you're like, it's very different when you're, I mean, obviously when you're talking to someone with BPD, it's going to be different than talking to somebody without BPD or, you know, someone with autism versus, you know, someone who's holistic. Um, so 
I kind of realized like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta think a different way. And then that's when I was, you know, kind of started, I started being able to get the results I want, but it's hard to identify a covert narcissist because it's covert narcissism. The whole point is you're not supposed to realize it. One of my parents had is narcissistic. They definitely have some narcissistic qualities. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. Can't really fucking fuck me over. And then kind of like going to therapy, I'm telling my therapist about like said parent and I'm just, and she's like, I'm like, I want to say she has BPD. And my therapist is like, you know what? I'm in agreement with you. But like without actually knowing this parent, I can't actually diagnose you, but it definitely sounds like it. So yeah. just like kind of talking with someone who has BPD, kind of realizing, because shit, I grew up with a lot of that shit. Yeah. With possibly a parent who has BPD because they themselves went through a crap ton of trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not it's true. Fun. No, it's not. <laughs> I've been the partner that has been with someone with BPD. I've been the partner with BPD. I've been the child with BPD. I've been the person, you know, who's narcissistic parents. Um, and, you know, I, I think perspective is the most important thing because if you don't have perspective, you can't properly communicate because then you don't know what the other person is experiencing. Yeah, um, this parent would not listen at all whenever I tried telling them how I felt like you said emotionally unavailable wouldn't take any sort of criticism didn't care about my thoughts feelings at all because you know that a wonderful saying I'm the parent you are the child hate that yeah. phrase um yeah. I was constantly walking on eggshells she would always tell me that she knows me better than myself yeah that's another yeah. thing that's, that's something like that I really think. fucked me up a lot kind of like it's like oh well, then the fuck am I you right. know <clears throat> um, well then what does the future look like for Colton what does Colton have future plans I just was able to finish paying off my debt to college so hopefully I can go fall semester um and really, I'm going to stick with what I'm good at and with what makes me happy. Because if I don't, then it's the point. <laughs> yeah. As we touched on earlier, you like um, dogs and you connect with dogs and you train dogs. Mm-hmm. I do, and yeah. Have you had any success helping train um, a part husky for any um, any type of service? So with Huskies and service work, it's a little more difficult because I haven't actually personally trained a Husky for service work, but I have shadowed in trainers that have. Um, it's a little more difficult because they're very aloof and they are, yeah. <laughs> the, um, you need a very specific uh, temperament. I mean, you can train any dog to perform any task. It's just a willingness of, do they want to? <laughs> yeah, that's- um, that's, so I do have a purebred husky, which is my dog, and then I just put in um, one of her puppies who is mixed with a golden lab. So just like her mother, she is stubborn, and to get her to do anything, I'm going to ask her about five or ten times before she listens to it, um, but I'm hoping the lab insert, like, you know, kind of calms her and reels her, because she's pretty lazy. Yeah. Where her, I, her mom's I think, nine years old. I, 
Yeah, if it's like a if it's a mix that has like retriever and lab and it kind of uh yeah huskies are very aloof and I've seen them be able to be service dogs like I've seen them trained to be service dogs um and they're smart it's just not as common because not a lot of them a lot of them want to do physical based work and not and service work is a lot of mental work for them yeah yeah that's (laughs) what I'm hoping with uh her name's Moomoo I'm hoping with Moo, I'll probably, when it comes, because I'm going to train her for Ambrose, um, you know, to track him because he has elopement issues um, and to basically just follow him around all the time or if, like, he's having self-interest behaviors because when he has meltdowns, he likes to hit himself, headbutt things, whatever, um, help kind of divert him from hurting himself. Um yeah we brought up the pika and the drywall um but i'm hoping that probably i'll have to seek more professional help at some point with her but i'm hoping i can get her to a point that she can do those things for ambrose but yeah as of right now we're still we're still working on those basics um because while she is four years old for the first four years of her life she was raised by um two addicts who just didn't do anything to properly train her. And then like the previous like six, little over six months ago, she was outside 24 seven in a kennel because my brother just abandoned her on my dad's property. My dad works a lot. He couldn't bring them in. There was two dogs. Couldn't bring two big dogs inside the home with um, abandonment issues and anxiety and whatnot destroy furniture while he wasn't home and they weren't kennel trained at that point in time they would have destroyed an indoor kennel together like they jumped through a, a living room window at one of my brother's apartments and shattered what the hell? oh oh yeah oh yeah she's kind of complete 180 oh i know it's like those issues but like i know i know i know in the short time i got i brought her home in the end of november and that short amount of time like she listens so much better we're still working on the potty in the house issue but she has done significantly better it doesn't help that we have another one that just doesn't care yeah but that we're just out to <laughs> yeah oh thank you for chatting with us uh do you of have course. any final final notes for the listeners um of encouragement anything if you have been thinking of ways to get out of a tough situation, there are a lot of free resources. Um, you can even, you know, text help hotlines that are completely free um, and you can ask them for resources. Um, and there's plenty of things out there. You just got to look for it. But I appreciate you listening to us and wanting to um, be on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you in the future at some point. Yeah. (laughs) Bye. Bye, Colin. Hey, everyone. We just want to thank you guys again for taking the time to come and hang out with us. Don't forget to give this episode a thumbs up so we know if we are doing well or not. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, please reach out to a medical professional because we obviously are not professionals. And if you want to follow Colton, his social medias, are going to be linked below in the show notes along with other ways to support us. You guys, stay authentically yourself and enjoy the rest of your week.